Thank you for being here for the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place where we can have conversations to come together on our healing journey from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Well, today we are with my good friend, John McCollum. He is the executive director and the founder of an organization called Asia's Hope, doing amazing things uh, in Asia for the sake of children. And um, John has become a really good friend of mine. In fact, helped me start our nonprofit, One Voice for Freedom, when I had no idea what to do. (laughs) I had a huge heart for stopping child sex trafficking in Asia and around the world, but I didn't really know what to do with that. And John, you've been such a good help to me and just kind of getting my thoughts down and, and to be able to create something um, with my passions and my vision. So thank you for that. But also I'm thrilled to have John on our show today because he has such a passion, not only for child protection and for orphans, um, but I've learned just over the course of our friendship that he's such a vocal advocate for holding people accountable and, um, to be a voice for survivors, especially in the church and in Christian organizations. And I think that that, especially in our culture today, is something that we need. We need more men in leadership stepping up for victims of sexual abuse and saying that this isn't going to happen in my organization or in my church and holding those accountable who have been accused. And so I've I've learned over the course of time that John's heart is huge for that, and I just wanted him to share a little bit today, um, one, about Asia's Hope, and then also if you could just share a little bit about why you care and sure. why you're willing to be a voice. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me on today. I appreciate uh, not only our time that we've had together just to get to know each other mm-hmm. better, but uh, the work that your organization's doing. It's exciting to uh, listen to your podcast, and it's an honor to uh, be one of the guests when there have been so many other fantastic guests. So, um, Well, a- as you said, I'm a co-founder of an organization called Asia's Hope, and we work with orphaned and vulnerable kids in Cambodia, Thailand, and India. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we're working to provide family-style alternatives to institutional orphan care. Mm -hmm. And so at Asia's Hope, um, what we do is we bring in kids who don't have any other family members who can take care of them. They don't have a strong family network. Other families uh, are no longer there. Their parents have died or been imprisoned uh, or have abandoned them. And so what we do is we try to create, rather than an institutional model, the the kind of model that you think about when you hear the word orphanage, Mm -hmm. we're trying to create in every way we can uh, homes that mimic a family, that mm-hmm. uh, provide stability, long-term care that allows siblings to stay together, that provide comprehensive care so we don't age kids out at a, at a certain point. And so uh, we believe that not only uh, are we seeing really great successes for the 800 or so kids that we have in our 34 homes, but uh, that we're creating a model that we believe can be emulated and improved upon mm-hmm. by other people. So that, that's what my my calling is in life. Uh, used to be to make Asia's Hope successful. Now it's to make orphanages more like family. Mm. But as a part of that, you know, we realize there's a real responsibility when you're taking in kids who are vulnerable. When you're taking in kids who uh, many of them have already been sexualized, uh, mm-hmm. exploited in one way or the other. That uh, we've got a real responsibility to make sure that we're uh, creating a place that is safe for them, that has a value 
for uh, child protection, uh, and that is uh, really centered around making sure that we're not replicating some of the negative forces in the wider society that orphan these kids in the first place. So uh, for a lot of reasons, which we can probably talk about as we go along, you know, th- this is this is my passion uh, in life, uh, but it also extends beyond just the work at Asia's Hope. It extends to my church and mm-hmm. other churches and something that's on the forefront of my mind. And so anytime I get an opportunity to be a voice for that, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for that. I've heard you say you know, in other situations in the past, just how important it is to set a standard. Yeah. And, you know, I know you, even in your organization, there, there are things that come up. You have so many children you're sure. caring for. You have staff all over the world. Yep. You know, there will be allegations. Yep. And so often, unfortunately right now, especially with the Me Too and the Church Too movement, yeah. we're hearing story after story of even mega churches and, mm-hmm. and well-known pastors yeah. who have have sexually abused people in their congregation and, or, you know, the, the language has changed though. Yes. It's inappropriate behavior sure. or, you know, um, I guess my question for you is how do you deal with things when they come up? Sure. Why do you, why do you not do what all these other organizations are doing, which are failing survivors are failing the church and are failing Jesus. But why are, why are you so different and, and how do you make those decisions? Well, first of all, I think part of it is just acknowledging the reality of uh, the scope of the situation. If we look just in America and we see that, what, 25% of adult women at some point in time in their life have been sexually abused, they've mm-hmm. been raped, they've been, uh, they've been coerced mm-hmm. uh, into sexual activity they didn't want, and, and something like 20% of the men. Right. And this is, uh, this is across all types mm-hmm. of family situations. We've got intact families. We've got families who are sending their kids to good schools mm-hmm. and good churches. Mm-hmm. And, it's not, and, and, and when we see these cases, it's usually not stranger danger where uh, you know somebody abducts someone on the street. That happens, and it's horrible when it happens, but it's usually a coach, uh, an uncle, mm-hmm. uh, a parent, a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, somebody in a position of trust. So the first step, I think, is acknowledging this. I think I've shocked some people um, and shocked even some of my staff uh, when I've said things like, first of all, uh, we, we are very careful about who we let come in from the outside to have access to our kids. Right. Um, we're very careful. We have background checks and we, mm-hmm. we you know, have lots of restrictions and lots of rules about how you can interact and what kind of oversight you have to have any, anyone who visits. But the, really the greatest threat to our organization is on the inside. It's on the inside. Mm. Um, if there aren't already uh, people who want to uh, or who are inclined to abuse a child already inside our organization, there will be and there will be trying uh, to get in. Uh, and it's not just you know, staff. It may be uh, older kids. It may be a teacher at the school. So acknowledging that is really shocking, but mm-hmm. kind of getting that out there and understanding that if we look at the statistics of what we already know, it is not just uh, kids in organizations that have uh, no values, uh, no uh, baseline commitment to protecting kids where uh, children are being abused. It's in stable families. It's in good churches. It's in mm. good homes. It's in good orphan care organizations. So I think the first step is really acknowledging that this is something that we will always have to face. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, hopefully you can demystify and de stigmatize the struggle against it. 
think there's so much shame around these things, not just for the victims, but for people uh, on whose watch these things have have happened. And and to a certain extent, there should be shame. If you're an organization that is uh, concealed uh, or uh, willingly turned a blind eye, there should be shame about that. But there is so much shame and so much anxiety around this. One of the first things that we can do is talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, now, by now, I've forgotten what your original question mm-hmm. was, but that, but that, that is that's one of the ways that that we're different, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just acknowledging that this does happen, this has happened, this will happen, and then some of the other things are when, and so some of it is a policy, is a, is a policy base, you know, making sure that everybody understands what the organization's committed to do, how we hire people, what kind of background checks we do, mm-hmm. um, what we intend to do. Uh, uh, if and when allegations uh, are disclosed, mm-hmm. uh, but but it's as much that as it is also a cultural uh, a, a cultural orientation that I think the leaders, especially senior leaders, have to take responsibility mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. and that is to understand that we don't exist to protect the interests of our donors. We don't exist to protect the right. reputation of our mm-hmm. organization. We exist to protect the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so anything we do that compromises that, even even though it may seem to be some short-term victory by not exposing this, this leader or this section of the organization or this ministry to shame, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what good is it if you if you fail at your core uh, calling mm-hmm. uh, to protect something external to that? Mm-hmm. There's nobody in our organization, not me, not any of our national directors, not any of our pastors, our teachers, our parents, nobody in our organization that is more important than any one of our individual children. Mm-hmm. No, no one's interests are more what, important. That's what I think I don't understand when we have all of these churches who have abusers within mm-hmm. them and then the leadership's protecting them when an allegation comes forward and you know rather than the immediate you know i'm so sorry how can we help the victim it's you know what you said earlier pray for the let's pray for the abuser's family as they're going through this time like why is it or then the others you know around the world that we don't want to have this come out we, we don't story to come out because we want to protect our church we want to we don't want to hurt the cause of the gospel. To me, none of that even makes sense. If you read about Jesus and the life he lived and the words that he said, he would protect the vulnerable. He would come to the side of the victim. He never is doing what these church leaders oftentimes we're hearing are doing. So it doesn't sure. add up well, to me. Well, I think I think it's natural. And I think that especially as you build a certain degree of success, you mm. build uh you know, you're dependent on people giving money. You're dependent on the goodwill of the community that you're in. There is a sense of self-protection. And when something shameful happens mm-hmm. on your watch, uh, a lot of times we we find ourselves jumping into a self-protective mode. The problem is, is that we lose the plot when mm-hmm. we believe that, uh, that the core... Uh, value in our organization is uh, our reputation and is the sense that, uh, you know, our authority or our position comes from our perfection and having nothing ever go wrong uh, or the perfection of our leaders in this instead of having, you know, as you said, a more Jesus centered and a more biblical and just a more realistic worldview, which says, look, we live in a world where bad people are doing bad things and Mm -hmm. people we consider to be good are doing bad things and that our core constituency and our core value is not the leadership structure, uh, but it's those that we're called to protect. And so we get it upside down. And, and I also think that there's a sense, you know, 
I've had in times that I've advocated for uh, victims and I've called uh, abusers and abusive systems or complicit systems to account. You know, I've had people sort of their gut I reaction. I want to hear about that. Well, I'll, I'll talk about some of that. <laughs> I want you to get angry right well, now. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always angry. Okay. No, well, I want you true. to let it that's out. That's not true. Um, but, you know, when we called, called to account, the, the first uh, uh, reaction is, John, why are you why are you so negative about the church? You know, that's one of the things I, I've been really encouraged to see the Me Too and the Church Too uh, movements uh, that, and if you ever want to uh, be simultaneously encouraged and infuriated, uh, mm-hmm. click on the Church Too hashtag. Totally. Um, encouraged because yeah. you see people telling their stories. You see a lot of advocates coming mm-hmm. alongside of uh, women and children, even boys and men who have been abused uh, in churches, but then, you know, infuriating when you see uh, still uh, a disturbing number of people who interpret this as, well, just another opportunity to beat up on the church mm-hmm. or this deflection. It goes, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. church too, yeah, it happens everywhere. Look what happened in this other religions, organizations, or in secular uh, settings. But mm-hmm. if you look at what Jesus said, what Jesus said, and I believe it extends not just to individuals, and I'm not sure I've heard this preached on yet, so maybe I just need to preach on it. Yeah, yes. um, like the, right now. <laughs> the individuals where Jesus says, you know, look, don't worry about the speck in the other person's eye. Mm-hmm. And and especially don't don't expose your own hypocrisy by going after the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a log sticking out of your own. I don't think that just is for individuals. I think that extends to organizations, mm-hmm. churches, families, and uh, to the church as a whole. Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside of the church? Um, but it's certainly my business to judge those who are on the inside. Mm-hmm. When Jesus came, uh, he came against the Pharisees, uh, the people of his own religion, the own power structure uh, in his own religion, uh, much harder than he did against Rome and against uh, the right. wider society. Right. And so uh, uh, it, if if we're really in tune with what uh, Jesus called us to do, with the example he showed us, of course we as Christians are going to be most vocal about the failings of our own churches mm-hmm. uh, and our own organizations. Of course, we're going to be uh, saying this is outrageous. We're going to be most infuriated with what happens inside our own walls mm. um, and and less concerned um, about what happens outside of our walls. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about these things happening in a broader society. We're also members of that too. But uh, so often the outrage that we have about what's happening you know, in Hollywood among secular elites or something like that. Yes, it's okay for us as Christians to be outraged at that, but that should be uh, something that intensifies our desire to see us clean house inside rather than as a point of deflection mm-hmm. where we say, hey, we're not so bad. Mm-hmm. The, the Christian message is we as Christians aren't so bad. Mm-hmm. The Christian message is, is that we as Christians, every single sin uh, and every single problem that exists in the world also exists within the church, but that we have been right. not only called, but we've been invited to give Jesus control of those things and to have you know, his word and his Holy Spirit come and purify us and present us as pure, not because we're intrinsically less likely to sexually abuse or cheat or steal money, but because we're just as likely and because we're empowered hmm. uh, by the Holy Spirit to turn those things over to Jesus, to let the light come in hmm. uh, and to have ourselves purified for God's glory and not ours. And to create safe places. I know, Mary, you and I have talked quite a bit about that in our last speaking engagements of just, you know, Mm -hmm. not only calling, you know, 
abuse what it is in the church, but also to then make the church that safe haven for survivors to come and, and to not feel like they're not welcome. Well, I mean, I think that's so, uh, it's so disturbing and so distressing to see what happens. Just, you know, just protecting one mm. abuser at the expense of one abused person. If those statistics are true, and I think they are, yeah. those high percentages of people who have been abused, and, and not only those mm. who have been overtly abused, who, who have been groomed, who have been mm -hmm. uh, harassed, who have been objectified, who have been dehumanized mm -hmm. uh, by oftentimes men in authority. You know, any time that we excuse or conceal or cover up or show more concern for an abuser, any abuser within our church than we do for a victim. We say to all of those people, every fourth woman in your pew, every fourth or fifth man in your pew who's been abused, here's what our church stands for. Instead of partnering mm -hmm. with Jesus to come to your aid and identify uh, and, and to take some of that burden from you and to mourn with you and then to stand up and say, you know what, this has been inside you for so long, you're struggling against, is this my fault? Did I do something? Am I worthless? Say, no, this was wrong. Mm -hmm. We stand with Jesus to say this was wrong. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're going to choose to partner with Satan and molest. Mm -hmm and abusers to put you back into your place. Oh. And, and nobody thinks they're doing that, I think. You know, right. and, and I've actually had, you know, I had a situation even in the church that I grew up in, you know, where uh, I uh, took a pretty firm stand against some concealment that they'd done of child sex abuse in a school that they ran. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I really lost a lot of friends. I even lost funding for Asia's Hope. Wow. Uh, I lost a lot in that. And mm. uh, even though this was my hometown, mm. this was the place that that I loved and that, that had nurtured me in my earlier years. Even recently, I had somebody say to me, well, you know, John, you really uh, did burn a lot of bridges as you were leaving here. And, mm. and not only did that sadden me, it really infuriated me, uh, coming from somebody that I trust and love, to hear that that's still the frame. Why is it when somebody's a whistleblower or somebody who mm -hmm. stands up and says, no, you can't conceal this. Uh, no, people need to uh, know what happened when this was being covered up. No, we need to hold mm -hmm. those who are complicit in this abuse account. We need to call somebody who molests a child, a child molester, yeah. not a good man who, uh, you know, had we don't want to throw failure. under the bus, had a yeah. moral failure. <laughs> right. a, a weak like, moment. A, yes. a weak moment. Oh. You know, why is it that, that you're telling the people who pulled the fire alarm, that they're the ones who are burning bridges, mm -hmm. you know? And that, that's the way I saw it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the way I see it. But I see it time and time mm -hmm. again. You know, I, you know, I had a certain experience watching that and other, uh, you know, sexual abuse cases handled poorly in places very close to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, it, it's interesting. When I've gotten uh, online and read the stories of survivors from other, from other organizations mm -hmm. that have had systemic failures at uh, protecting kids um, and it, it happens the same way yeah. every time it is it, it is it's almost banal uh the consistency mm -hmm. there was a website a few years ago i had to unsubscribe because it was so discouraging um on one hand it's enlightening but you you can watch these stories crest in an organization you can see the blaming of the victim blaming of the victim's advocates the mm -hmm. self-justification the minimization the the refusal to hold people accountable to see those who are most concerned with uh, re 
focusing the attention where it should be, and that is standing up for the victims, uh, seeing them pushed to the sides and eventually pushed out. It's it's almost boring. It's so predictable. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and you can right. watch it. And, and, and I've gotten to the point when I see, and that's why I'm really vigilant in my own organization and in, in my church as well. You know, when I see an allegation uh, come forth, I can almost predict, especially if I know a little bit about the organization, um, you know, I can almost predict the course it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And I'm so pleased when it doesn't happen that way. And you mm-hmm. see somebody who their first concern, instead of, hey, let's pray for this abuser, um, which we should, sure, you know, uh, but sometimes the That's correct prayer the should first. be that they're brought to justice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, the, but the concern is with the abuser and with the abuser's family and, and God help the abuser's family as well. Oftentimes they've been mm-hmm. uh, abused as well. Sure. But, you know, I've seen time and time, I can probably count a dozen times that I've seen up close and personal where there's never any mention or it's an afterthought of uh, of the known victims of the abuse or the alleged victims of the abuse or even an attempt to ever determine whether there were others who were victimized and yeah, what more. is our responsibility as an organization to uh, provide services for and to provide advocacy. So going back to what you're mm-hmm. what you're saying about making a church a mm-hmm. safe place. Yeah. There's there's actual safety. There are actual things you can do to harden yourself against future abuse, but recognizing that there are moms and daughters and brothers and sisters right now that are in your church right now who they may have never told. Maybe they didn't tell because they saw before mm-hmm. what would happen. You're Example, holding back their right. healing. You're holding them still in a place mm-hmm. where they can either condemn themselves or where they're, where they're tempted to uh, view Jesus and his people as not being a safe place mm-hmm. because their concerns are not the ones that are prioritized in the organization. Well, it makes me think about the situation, if you're willing to talk about it, um, within Asia's Hope, sure. where the one girl came forward on about your staff member. Yeah. And your response to that was amazing because you were saying the way you respond to her sets the tone and is an example for all of your other Asia's Hope kids. That's right. And could you share a little bit sure. about that? We had a situation a few years ago in one of our uh, in one of our countries that we work, where I received uh, an audio tape of uh, a girl disclosing to a third party that she had been sexually abused by one of our senior staff members, mm. and it came as a shock to me. Sure, you know, and uh, it came as a shock to me, and I was. Uh, heartbroken and infuriated all those things all at once and you know as this happens even though we made the decision beforehand which is very important by the way you have to decide mm-hmm. beforehand what you're going to do when this mm-hmm. happens otherwise uh, when an allegation comes in especially if it's someone close to you it's mm-hmm. your brother it's your spouse it is your pastor who you know brought you to Christ baptized you and your kids the, those situations you may make the wrong decision if you haven't decided you've told your board you've told mm-hmm. your spouse you've told told uh, your colleagues, what are we going to do mm-hmm. in this situation? Here's where I stand mm-hmm. at any rate. That's really good. Uh, you know, th- this came this came to me and all of these emotions came flooding in, uh, including the the fear that we talk about, about self-protection. What happens? You know, what? Mm-hmm. Wh- how are we going to run our organization without this person? What is the other staff going to do? Are they going to, you know, get behind this person or get behind the child? 
all these different things, they all come flooding in. But the thing that sealed it for me, in addition to the fact that we'd already made this commitment, I heard her say what I've heard other victims say. Uh, the person who was interviewing asked her, why didn't you come forward earlier? Why didn't you tell this person? Why didn't you tell that person? And what she said is she said, I'm just a little orphan girl. I'm just a child. and He's a pastor. Who's going to listen to me? And so that broke my heart and just, you know, I was, I was just infuriated and, and brokenhearted because not only did my heart scream out and say, no, that's not true. We will listen to you. We want to listen and we're going to come to your aid and we are going to come and bring this to account. But I also knew that this is millions of incidents around the world. That is exactly true. So it's exactly right. true. Yes, it's it exactly is. true. And we prove it time and time again by just watching how these things play mm-hmm. out. You know, a girl comes forward, you know, and you, you find yourself minimizing this and allowing people to believe that uh, even if you do hold someone to account, as happened in my background with somebody that I knew, you know, allow the, the church and the congregation to believe this person resigned because of adultery, not because they're mm. a criminal who molested mm. a child, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, that you minimize it and you don't listen to them and you cover it up or you encourage them as so many do encourage them. Well, don't come forward because, you know, uh, we're going to take care of this ourselves. We, it's not, she wasn't wrong, generally speaking. Thank God she was wrong specific to our organization, to what our response, my response, and our board's response was. But she was not wrong in identifying the fact that, and this is what, this is what abusers tell their victims. Sometimes it's explicit. They tell them, nobody's going to believe you. Who's going to believe you? I am the principal Mm -hmm. of the school, or I am the soccer coach, Mm -hmm. or I am the adult. But, but that's a line that Satan uses as well. And so how sad is it when just spontaneously, I don't know if this girl was ever told that. I don't know if she was ever told no one will believe you, but she knew it at her heart because right. she knows the way the world works. Yeah, she knows the way that Satan works, mm-hmm. even in Christian organizations, mm-hmm. that the likelihood is the normal course of events is that you are not going to believe be believed. Mm-hmm. So, so, sad. so when this happened, we did, we did respond at, at, you know, at kind of great, personal expense we ended up um and not just financial expense but you know uh, at the expense of lots of lots of relationships and we ended up uh uh coming into the situation removing the person who was involved and against the uh pleas of a lot of different people who are close to the situation we did what was morally and legally right and we uh, turned over the results of you know our findings to the police and invited investigations in mm-hmm. and and the the sad thing is the sad thing is is that in that situation no charges were ever brought whether it was under pressure from herself or from uh, from the person who had had allegedly abused her she uh, ended up withdrawing her statement yeah. there was nothing that the local police uh, would do about this mm-hmm. uh, and we did all of this mm-hmm. to seemingly no account but mm-hmm. but I do believe that we put a line in the sand I believe we so. made it we made an, uh, a statement to all of our staff mm. we made a statement to our support uh, to our, our supporters our core supporters who we did communicate about this with which mm-hmm. is another thing you know talk about at some mm-hmm. point possibly uh, and to all the kids in the organization mm. um, I, we we had a choice are we going to right now say this is an organization who will believe you and take seriously your concerns mm. or are we going to say that we are an organization who will always 
who will always side uh, with one of ours, with another person who's like us, a, a, a male, a pastor, somebody who's part mm-hmm. of the power structure. And I believe that we want a bigger battle, even though this particular one, there, there was no, no satisfactory resolution. So it may even appear that, you know, this is a loss, but I think it's a win. Uh, or at the very least, yeah. it's, a, it's a prevention of a greater loss. How, I, I, you know, our board was 100% behind the decisions we made. I did have a board member uh, say to me, what would you have done if the board would have voted against mm-hmm. this? You know, I said I would have stood my ground and then I would have quit. Mm. And that's powerful. Um, and it's because it's because, you know, to protect this one person or or even this one whole arm of our organization, but then to find out as many other uh, organizations have found out later that because they turned a blind eye to this, they opened up their organization to this infection of sexual abuse. And now you've got right. 20 kids exactly. come back 20 years later and said, here's yeah. what happened to me. And if somebody would have said, actually, we told John McCollum, John McCollum knew about this and he didn't believe us. You know, what, what good is that? What, what does it profit for me to gain the whole world, to gain any ministry success, to avoid any temporary pain, to lose my soul and to lose our organization's soul by uh, being uh, aligning ourselves with Satan and being complicit in uh, the exploitation of kids. I just think that's such a powerful thing to be able to say that you walked through that and it was worth it. Yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things that that there's no other there's no other choice. I mean, I, but I think so many organizations, Christian organizations and churches, make the other choice, and it's the wrong choice. Well, yeah, and you know, we've we've actually had to learn. I, I hope we we're doing it better and better as time goes on. We've learned from you know from earlier days. You know, things we've learned. Hey, we're never going to try to investigate these things on our own. Mm-hmm. As you know, early days. Yeah. You know, we go well. Let us try to figure out what happened and make decisions from there. Yeah, organizations can get better organizations can but but it takes repentance As a matter of fact that's one of the things that's so frustrating is is to see uh the again that self def, uh defensive uh response that i mean how many times do you see senior pastors and executive pastors and superintendents and people in christian organizations who didn't actually sexually abuse a child but were complicit in a cover-up mm-hmm. actually say you know what guys we sinned. We sinned against the victim. Mm-hmm. We sinned against all of you who put your trust in us. We sinned. We were wrong, and we did it out of the wrong motives. Mm-hmm. And, and when we thought they were the right motives, we realize now uh, that they're the wrong motives. But we harden ourselves against that. We, we pull ourselves back into a siege mentality, mentality sometimes into this bogus persecution mentality everybody's out to get us and so therefore you know we we can't uh trust god to uh, defend us if we do the right thing we're going to open ourselves up to you know to to criticism and that's going to be bad for the gospel mm-hmm. you know there's nothing worse for the gospel than to uh you know be uh revealed as the guy with the log sticking out of your own eye uh while you're you know you're out there uh, trying to tell the world why uh, their sins are the things that disqualify them, mm. you know? Right. I think it's also appropriate to talk about how when things have come up with someone who was on staff, no longer is on staff, you even go so far as to go backwards. I just think that so many Christian organizations need to hear what you have to say. That you go backwards yeah. and you and you do the checks and the balances with the kids that maybe had been around that abuser sure and 
it and didn't even the, come out when it was in your organization. Yeah, that, that's one of the things. It's difficult. It's difficult to go backwards, and mm. you know, and and but we do anytime that there's been any sort of an allegation, or even we find that somebody who has been a part of our organization in any way that has later been found to have offended even outside of Asia's Hope, we have to go back and ask ourselves those things. Nobody really wants to find out. At some level, we don't really want to find out while wow, there are other abuses that happened. But we know, statistically speaking, and we know from interviews with uh, offenders, uh, that the first time somebody is caught is rarely the first time they've abused. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets caught the first time. Mm -hmm. You get dumber and you get more confident. uh, And just numerically speaking, there are more people who know your secrets uh, the more you abuse, and that's where people get caught. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we had a situation. This actually happened a couple times. Had a situation, and we're very careful, and increasingly so, very careful about who we allow to come and spend time with our kids. We're not a short-term missions organization, so we don't have a ton of people coming through, but we do have people that are members of our partnering churches and that who we allow to come, uh, and we do background checks now, and we've got you know all sorts of policies and that, but we had a situation where somebody who had been on a couple Asia's Hope trips through their church had uh, later outside of Asia's Hope been uh, been accused and convicted of a sexual abuse against a minor. And when we found out about it, uh, not only did we go back to our staff and we said to our staff, here are the dates this person was there. We need to find out everybody who was on staff at that time, everybody who could, every place this person could have been, you know, were there any situations in which this person could have been alone with a child? What did we have in place at the time prevent that from happening? Are there any place there could have been breaches? Even asking the children, you know, talking to the children, you know, if anything happened while this person was there, trying to uh, chase down all of those leads because, you know, there are hidden trails that can be these seams of pain and venom inside an organization and a sort of an individual child's life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just having somebody ask the question and having it be okay That's and having so the organization cool. demonstrate, look, we want to know if you were ever hurt, yeah. um, you, we want you to tell us. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we went, we communicated to all of our churches that were partnering in that ministry in that in that country where we were working any place that guy could have been mm-hmm. we sent a copy of the docket you know of this guy's court case uh, we said here's what our organization we are horrified to find out about this this person was on our grounds we're doing everything we can we will keep you posted as the charges move forward we'll keep you posted uh you know if there's a conviction or any other disposition mm-hmm. uh, and we are going to continue monitoring whether or not there was any chance this person you know uh, had any Uh, access to our kids that we don't know about. And we want you to tell us if you ever have any concerns about this or any other person, let us know. And we've done it. We followed up and we've done periodic follow-ups just to make sure that there aren't any long trails. And, you know, it's interesting because when we started and we've had a couple other situations where we've had to do that. Mm -hmm. And the first reaction sometimes is, wow, isn't this, isn't this a bit too much? You know, is this really our purview? Shouldn't, (laughs) you shouldn't the church, uh, you know, be the one taking the lead on this? Uh, And, 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 and there's sort of, or anytime we increase our standards for who can, can't come visit or uh, what do our background checks look, there is a bit of a, you know, people sort of seize up a little bit and go, wow, isn't this going to make, people are going to feel bad because they're going to feel like we suspect them in this. Yeah. But what I've seen is we've actually, you know, um, not paid any negative price. We had people come back and say, we are so thankful that you're leading in this way. This makes us feel better about your organization. Mm -hmm churches they go oh we don't want to make everybody do background checks <laughs> yeah. to work with the kids yeah um 
And, you know, and, and there, I've had individual, you know, pushback sometimes where people say, I've been supporting this ministry or I've been in this church for 15 years and I've taught Sunday school and nobody's ever made me do this. <laughs> but that's why it's so important for leaders. I get a background check every time before I go. I make my sons and my wife get background checks before we go to visit Asia Hope, even though I've done it, you know, been there. I've been to Cambodia 26 times mm-hmm. with Asia's Hope. Right. You know, I'm still getting a background check. I'm observing all of the rules mm-hmm. in terms of what kind of contact. Can we have contact in social media with the kids? As a leader, rather than looking for an opportunity to say, um, I should be given more trust, I have to lead. And I've, I've told people, a couple of people have pushed back in the past. And I've said, look, if you perceive yourself to be a leader at Asia's Hope, you need to lead by example. You need to be the first person who says, absolutely, I'm willing, you know, I'll take, you know, you want a blood test? You want a polygraph? <laughs> what do you want? Because I'm, we don't do that yet. Yeah. Uh, yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean. No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's where leaders can say, can not only demystify it, you know, the thing we should be shamed of, ashamed of mm-hmm. is not finding instances of abuse. And we should be proud of and gratifying. Maybe that's not the right way to think about it, but we should feel we should feel pleased and feel the embrace of God and the affirmation of God's people when we actually do mm-hmm. bring to light uh, something that that has happened or may have happened. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. I think the over communication, even as an organization, to people is, you know, it can feel scary. It can mm-hmm. feel like, oh, are we telling them too much? They don't need to know this. But in the end, it makes them trust you more. And I think that's really good. And they're even thanking you. It reminds me of just recently with um, having one of my kids, their friends on the bus, their mom texts me and wanted to have them over for a play date. And I'm like, I don't know this woman. I don't know their family. I don't know if the dad's home. I'm not going to send my kids to some house I've never been to with parents. I don't know if there's a big brother, sister. Yeah. I don't know anything. Yeah. But so then making that phone call, you know, hey, can we talk? Well, this is my issue. I'm not sending my kids. Like in the end, she was like, thank you for asking. Thank you for calling. Yeah. I would love to have you over too. You know, it's the over communication. You think it's going to go bad. You you think they're going to think you're weird or you're sharing too yeah. much information. But in the end, they're thankful. But guess what? Not only did you make your child safer in that instance by uh, making sure you're not sending them into a dangerous situation. Um, we know that uh, people who want to victimize children. Uh, there are plenty of children that uh, are there. There's are some that are easier targets than others. It's ones who don't have the parental structures uh, or who have parents who may, uh, who may not be aware of the dangers out mm-hmm. there or who don't take precautions. And this is not to blame anyone whose no, child has been, has, has been abused. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that you can make yourself an easier target or you can make yourself a less easy target. Mm-hmm. So not only have you protected your child in that instance, you've protected your family uh, in a broader sense, but also you've made your community a little bit more safer by being the one maybe to take the arrows for uh, being that strange uh, woman who's a little bit paranoid, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because I guarantee you that when the moms are around talking about this and say, yeah, well, can you believe what Nicole did? A couple of them are walking away going, <laughs> yeah, huh, uh-huh. maybe I need to do that too. Uh-huh. I think our neighbors would be shocked <laughs> at how many uh, background checks I have. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll edit that one out. Yeah. But uh, how many background <laughs> checks I've asked our attorney to do on parents of friends of yeah. my daughter, you know? I <laughs> love it. I don't blame you. Yeah. But I will say the overcommunication, I think, is just a powerful tool of protection. But it also establishes you as a safe person. Mm-hmm. Who am I going to uh, feel more comfortable disclosing a suspicion, uh, either if I'm a child or if I'm another parent, uh, about uh, 
behavior that could be grooming behavior or behavior that could be actual abuse. Somebody who has uh, made it clear, look, it's not any of my business to know what happens behind anyone else's doors. Uh, it's not my business to call any organization my kid is into account. I'm just going to trust them. Uh, or somebody who says, you know, I'm aware that this is an issue and I'm going to make sure that I'm standing up to protect not only my kids, but your kids. Um, you've now made yourself and your community and your family and your school and your church safer by being somebody who's willing to stand up and say, yeah, this is important to me. This is important to me. And let the school know and let the church know and let the neighbors know that it's not going to be a cost in terms of my relationship with you if you ask me questions. Ask me questions about what happens at my house. Mm -hmm. Ask me questions. It's important if you're going to send mm -hmm. your daughter over to have a sleepover at my house, you need to know, hey, I don't know these older brothers. Mm -hmm. Are the older brothers going to be there? Is there any, where's the bedroom? Is there any time, right. you know, are they having friends in the house mm -hmm. that you don't know about? And it can feel so weird to ask those questions. Yeah. But it they're can. appropriate. And this is why I, you know, there are sometimes we have people who are really worried and you see this, oh man, it's, you know, it's consent is now becoming such a big deal that it's going to be unsafe for anybody to have any sort of relationship mm -hmm. because everyone's always going to be asking, you know, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? We're all going to be so uh, hyper vigilant. It's like, First of all, I don't think it has to be like that. I actually think that the more that those issues are, are are aware of, the more they can be reinforced and enforced by the broader community, it diminishes the need to have individually really intense sort of punctuated mm -hmm. uh, conversations mm -hmm. about it because it's a part of the But But also, if I had to choose, I think we've been undervigilant for far too long and just the numbers, the sheer numbers of people who say, and when you hear the situation, how is nobody looking? Mm. How was no, how, how was nobody looking when this middle right. school girls soccer coach was buying drinks for this, you know, this, mm -hmm. uh, this 16 year old uh, player or 15 year old player yeah. on the team. I think that as we become more aware as, as those of us who, who, you know, are able to stand up and lead in this, make it more okay mm. for people to ask these questions. I think we're going to become a safer uh, organization, uh, safer, safer organizations, safer communities, safer schools and churches. Mm. And I think that that will actually decrease, uh, the chances that any individual people who might not be as bold as you and me, uh, will, uh, will fear, uh, it'll decrease the fear that they have about also standing up and saying, yeah, you know, I, I'm worried right. about this too. That's so good. Um, Mary and I have been talking a lot about, I just feel empowered to write a new book Mm. on that very topic of just um, the vigilance and mm. empowering those who are in positions to care for children to have the hard conversations and, you know, to not be afraid of them. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that it will change our culture to a point of, of an overall culture of protection, looking out for one another and, and kids being um, strengthened yeah. to be able to even self-protect in some, right. some cases. That's right. And I think that that's, that's the thing, the shame that we often feel uh, as leaders when somebody in our organization offends or somebody uh, adjacent to our organization offends. That shame is very uh, easily uh, externalized and then absorbed by uh, potential victims. Mm. Um, and, and we need to be explicit about the fact that the shame uh, shouldn't attach to the victim, but should attach to uh, the person who's offended them and the people who have uh, been complicit with them. And That's where the shame protect, yeah. the shame should should reside. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, too often that doesn't happen. Yeah, you're right.
And that's why we're, I think, in the midst of this movement right now where people are finally realizing that, wait, this wasn't my shame to carry. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my story matters. Yeah. And if I tell my story, maybe there's other victims out there from the same abuser. That's right. That's right. So you, you as somebody who was a, a victim, you can empower other victims in the same way that people who aren't uh, victims but are allies and people who want to be protectors and people who are leaders, they too, uh, you, you have to decide. I do, I do think that doing nothing about this is taking a side. And, and the weight shouldn't be always on the victims. They're the ones who bear the, the heaviest weight. They shouldn't, the weight shouldn't be completely on them where they have to take the entire cost for coming forward. Mm-hmm. That's why those of us who are leaders and those of us who are parents, and those who are allies and advocates of victims, we can take some of that on ourselves by mm-hmm. being proactive and signaling that we're willing to take it by when we have the opportunity to actively take the shame away from the victims and to say, we're not going to be afraid mm-hmm. of the fact that, yeah, this is a shameful act. This is a, mm-hmm. a sad, this is an injustice. This is a bad thing. But we're not going to, we're going to protect you as the victim from having that. And we're going to be willing to take that. Mm-hmm. We're going to be willing to absorb some of that on our own. And I think that that's a role that we all have uh, because it is too, too hard. Mm-hmm. It's too hard for a little girl. Mm-hmm. It's too hard. Yeah. It happens sometime, but we know it's too hard for a little girl to stand up against all that, especially if she knows that that because she's seen it in her community, what's going to happen is they're going to ask, well, you you know how girls are these days. You see how they dress? Mm. You see how they dress or or well, you know, she'd been asking for it or mm. she'd been coming on to him for a long mm. time and and you know, girl, I I've heard so many times and some of this is you know, some of this is, yeah, you can observe certain things in culture, uh, but some of these these apparent truths can actually um, be functional for, you know, propping up rape and assault culture. This idea, well, girls today, you know, girls today, a 12 year old today is what a 20 year old was when I was in school. It's like, well, what is the, what are the ramifications of that for holding, uh, uh, sexual abusers in, uh, to, to account, you know, and there are ways that we can maybe observe that social mores are changing. We can embrace the things that are good about it and, you know, push back about things that aren't. But I mean, so many times, even that type of observation, I've heard it, used to implicitly and even explicitly excuse um well you know you you know i mean you girls today a 15 year old today today she's so she is so worldly that it's like a 25 year old was mm-hmm. back when i was in college so therefore you have now not only have you shifted the blame to her mm-hmm. partially her blame mm-hmm. or you've made consensual that which, which can never be a consensual relationship due to either age difference or power differential right um you know, those sorts of things, you know, we all have to be conscious of that mm-hmm. and we all have to be willing to push back and say, no, no, that, that's not, that's not okay. think it about make our it language and yeah. how we're communicating things and the, the replies that we're giving when we hear these terrible stories, you know, to hear someone say that in response to a young girl getting raped or sexually abused or groomed over a long stretch of time yeah. by a youth pastor. It, you know, we have to change that in our culture as far as the communicating and the language goes. It it reminds me a lot, too, of like the Black Lives Matter stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and a story comes up of a young kid getting shot for no reason for having a toy gun in his pocket. And then someone that is not of color responding with something like, but he was, you know, there sure. is no but he was. There's no response to that. There is. That should not have happened. Same right. thing with the abuse. So, for instance, one of the principles that we articulate at Asia's Hope about uh, about sexual abuse and mm-hmm. and and really any kind of uh, 
infractions of improper relationships with kids. It is always the adult and always the one in the power. It is mm. always their responsibility to maintain proper boundaries. Mm. You know, um, even in terms of so, for instance, this is just you know kind of one of the one of the details is we we talk about how you can and cannot have physical contact with kids. And so, for instance, no adult can initiate physical contact with a kid, except for maybe a high five or a fist bump or something like that. You can't initiate a kid with a hug or pull a kid into a hug, Mm -hmm. you know, but we have the other things go, well, what if this kid comes up and they come up and they sit in my lap, uh, which is something which, you know, like, hey, kid sits in your lap, you know, you redirect, your kid can sit in your lap for, sit on your knee for a moment, but then you get up and walk around, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, or what if a kid does this, or you hear these things about even more explicitly, but this girl was just pursuing this, this youth pastor or this teacher. And it's like, look, even if she comes in and takes off all of her clothes, Mm -hmm. uh, it is the responsibility of the adult always, or the one in power, Mm -hmm. always it's your responsibility to maintain those, uh, those boundaries. And whereas that may seem from an some adults perspective that may seem unfair. Well, you know what? Get over it. That is the, uh, that's part of what being an adult and being a leader is, <laughs> right. you know, rather than having your leader. And so many times you hear, oh man, leaders are under such pressure. And it's like, yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. It's true. And and we do have to be aware, but that should never be an exculpatory factor. True. That should be something where we're aware of it and go, yeah, we are under pressure. We may be in situations where there's intense emotions as a pastor or someone in a helping profession. We may be in a situation where there are people who we have access to their emotional life that that could make uh, uh, an abusive situation more likely. And that's why we, rather than choosing to excuse ourselves or other people when this happened, we need to say, and like Jesus says, not or, or uh, uh, I think it's Paul says, not many of you should be teachers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not many of you should be leaders. And there are a lot of people who uh, need to get out of leadership if they're not willing to not only assume the responsibility, but work to create boundaries around their own lives and then mm-hmm. to hold other people responsible i feel like you've you've had this heart ever since i knew you john like you and you've been vocal you've been a voice on this topic of sexual abuse like have you always had that well i've always had a, a sense of um a strong sense of justice okay. and, and and part of it was you know i grew up in a pretty authoritarian uh, church and even family to a certain extent, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, in a community that really valued conformity. And I was a weird, creative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, obstreperous, you know, kid who did not play the game well. I couldn't. I couldn't sit still. I mm-hmm. couldn't. You know, I would found myself oftentimes feeling personally judged uh, for things that I look back now and I say, you know, we get character judgments uh, uh, against things that are sort of personality and brain chemistry see, and, yeah. you know, and, and so, you know, I had a lot of situations where growing up I was, I was aware of ways that I perceived that I'd been treated unfairly. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I think at an early age, I, I had a real strong sense of really struggling against authority wielded poorly. Uh, and, you know, I struggled with, uh, I struggled with some degree of, uh, shame, you know, that I couldn't, mm. uh, fit in yeah. the way that I was supposed to. Uh, but I also, you know, developed sort of an awareness of the way that adults, people who should be the ones that are, you know, lightening the burden on kids, even weird kids or vulnerable kids or kids who are different or kids who are unruly, instead were using their authority to cover for their own, uh, you know, for, for their own moral failings and for their own uh, their, their own character flaws. Mm. And, and again, I saw early on the way that, especially in authoritarian, 
sectarian structures. And I think that you'll, you will see, and this is, this, this may be wrong. I haven't done a lot of research on this, but I think that whether there's more abuse in an authoritarian system or not, there's definitely, I believe, a, a higher resistance to accountability within those because so much is vested in you as the child need to always obey. Mm-hmm. You as a child, no matter what happens, it's always you who are at fault. Mm-hmm. And a child can get in trouble for expressing, the child is sinful for expressing their own discomfort with a situation or a way they've been treated. Um, and But an adult who may be treating a child unfairly, even mm-hmm. if it's not abuse, you know, yeah. a, a ch- in an authoritarian mm-hmm. authoritarian structure, an adult can bend a situation to reflect their own preferences, sure. what they want to do. Do I want to take a walk right now? Do I want to have ham rather than chicken? You know, do I want to do these things? And there's never <laughs> any moral question as to whether or not exerting that authority over a child is right. Mm. But if a child expresses themselves as being uncomfortable or having different desires, uh, that is a, a child's moral failing. Mm. And in so many situations, it's the child's failure to submit to authority uh, that is, or a wife's mm-hmm. failure to submit to authority mm. uh, that mm-hmm. is perceived by the power structure to be the root of the problem. Mm. So at any rate, I was really aware of this. And authority never having humility to ever apologize yeah. for anything or admit, oh, I might have not been right, right in that yet. You know, I, I can think of people who are my, uh, you know, dear, you know, leaders in my life, uh, you know, people who uh, were very formative to me at early ages who I still uh, have never seen uh, apologize or acknowledge clear sin in the concealment of uh, sexual abuse of kids. Mm. Um, and that is, again, heartbreaking and infuriating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at, at some point, it's, it's baffling. Um, but having grown up in that type of a world, yeah. I was all, when I began to, you know, accrue authority and leadership positions myself, you know, I had to really fight in my own self the uh, inclination to, you know, finally get my way and finally get people to, uh, you know, listen to me and obey me. But I'm thankful that God uh, allowed me and gave me opportunities to turn it outwards towards other people, to use the authority and leadership I have to advocate for children and to make way for Mm. them. And and that's the example that we see of Jesus didn't use his authority to make his own life easier or to get his way and everything. Mm. It says that, you know, that he, even he being equal to God, ultimate authority, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't consider that something to be grasped, Mm -hmm. but he made himself nothing, you know, washed the feet of his Mm -hmm. disciples, poured himself out, was patient with the patience Mm -hmm. that Jesus showed the people who should have given him ultimate deference. He deferred to them. And so sought out women who right. were hurting and bleeding right. and at his own, at great, mm-hmm. at great personal cost, you know, not only did that sort of thing end up getting him killed, uh, but, uh, you know, a great personal cost to his reputation and to his comfort. Mm. So for me, um, I'm thankful that, you know, God used things that I think Satan probably, uh, wanted to use to destroy and prevent mm-hmm. me from having any positive influence. God showed me mercy uh, and gave me a heart for people who have been, you know, uh, who have been oppressed and suppressed and repressed by uh, people who wield authority in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're the type of person that is looking for those who are marginalized. You're the type of person who wants to see justice happen for those who don't have a voice. You want to help them find their voice. And um, I don't say that, I don't say this about, 
very many people that I know, but John, you're a safe man and I trust you. I trust how you run your nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know that I could say that about anyone else that I know at this point in my life. So Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate your heart and where you're coming from and um, your voice on this matter. I mean, there's probably five people on Facebook that I have like starred. Like I want your, your comments to come up first. You're one of them. (laughs) So you get all my silly jokes. Yeah, you well. get so that I apologize too. for that. So I know you're really quirky and weird. So it's your childhood makes sense to me. Yes. Very <laughs> but you're brilliant. And the way you care for people um, is just top notch. So I'm just so grateful you're my friend. I just want to encourage people. You know, you talked about being a safe person. There's such a power in somebody who has uh, access and who has authority and who has privilege, which is a word that is so, you know, contentious at this at this Point, but somebody who does have that to be able to tell somebody who doesn't, wow, that mm. sounds really painful. You really were abused. That was unfair mm. to tell somebody that was unfair. Yeah, you know, um, rather than say, well, what did you do to make this happen, mm. or you know, what can we do to make it so you don't tell your story? To actually have somebody tell you that was wrong. Mm-hmm. That was wrong. I mean, the 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 power that can have to unlock in that specific person's life, um, you know, healing, but also to unleash into the community and the organization, you know, a a stream of, uh, healing that, uh, that I just pray that, that the Holy Spirit will empower in our homes and Mm -hmm. families and churches Mm -hmm. and organizations where we become a place where that's our reflex. Our reflex is to, is to say, is to acknowledge the hurt of so many people. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Think about the people who who come to church, who hear sermons for year after year after year. Mm-hmm. They hear lots of sermons about sin, their sin and other people's sins, but they never hear anyone be able to really, really put their hand gently on that that spot that's most that's most painful, and to say. That was wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there are men and women who uh, have uh, carried shame and carried pain for decades and decades and decades, and I've never heard a pastor, mm. never heard a pastor say, "If this happened to you, it was wrong, and we stand with you." Wow. And if there was a church, or if there's a Christian, or a pastor who told you to be quiet, who covered it up, and who uh, came uh, with full force of the organization to the rescue of the person who abused you and left you uh, dying on the side of the road. We are sorry. Can we do that? I mean, can uh, yeah. can can we leverage? You know, so often, you know, it, it's mm. it's difficult whether we're talking about our country or we're talking about our church. I think there's a place. You know, it, we're so willing to take credit for things that uh, we didn't uh, that we didn't achieve achievements that that some one of our forefathers achieved that we were proud of. <laughs> Um, can we say, can, are we big enough and strong enough to allow, you know, God to give us the emotional resilience to take responsibility for things that some other pastor or leader might've done? Mm. Can I, as a pastor who has never sexually abused somebody and who is, who has always tried to be responsive, can I actually feel sorrow and remorse? And what would change in my church Mm. if I knew that, that I bore some by extension, some personal weight of responsibility for every woman and child who's been sexually abused by any other Christian someplace else. And just say, I'm sorry. Mm. I am so sorry. And on behalf of the church and on pastors, even if that guy won't repent, even if that pastor Mm. who betrayed you Mm. by not coming to your aid, even if he won't repent, I will. Mm -hmm. 
what would be the power in that? What would happen if mm-hmm. that was unleashed in our churches? I think any of the shame that we might have and the fear that people might have about, you know, oh, this is going to make the church look bad, that would be washed away in a torrent of grace if yeah. we would uh, put that fear aside and extend, exchange that for um, the Holy Spirit empowered, you know, wounded healer posture that says, we're sorry. We're sorry. I am so sorry. Even if this wasn't my church, even if it wasn't in my organization, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would like to see happen. And I believe that we're always one person away, one generation away from baking, breaking a chain of, of, of hidden guilt and of shame. Uh, and we can extend that. It's so, it, it's free. It's free to extend that grace to somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's the part of the privilege that we have that as a, you know, as somebody, and and even as a survivor, as somebody who is whole and who is healed to be able to say to somebody else, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. That was wrong. Mm -hmm. I felt that. And let me Mm -hmm. take your shame. Mm -hmm. I already took it. I mean, what could be more like Jesus than that? To take the sin Mm -hmm. and to take the shame that wasn't rightly your own, uh, but willing to take it upon yourself and to give it to God so that it can be redeemed. To feel feel where someone else, to actually put yourself in their shoes for a moment of your life, especially as a Christian leader, as a pastor, to be able to say, I'm going to take this moment. I'm going to be where you're at. I'm going to feel what you're feeling. I'm going to help you release that. I think we can do that. And I think that any of the concerns that we might have about, well, what's this going to do to our testimony? There's no greater testimony than being able to do what Jesus did mm-hmm. to say the things he said and, uh, and to defend the people that he defends. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's what I would like to see. Um, and if I have any, you know, if, if there's any legacy that I have beyond any, you know, organizational building that I've done, that's legacy I want to have. Mm-hmm. And, so I'm motivated by that hope. I'm also, you know, motivated by the fear mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that someday somebody could look back and say, I tried to tell you and you wouldn't listen. Mm. And I think it's okay to be motivated by both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's where I am. I love it. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, John. Your heart's huge. You. And just really grateful for the work that you're doing too um, around the world. And for the sake of the children that are under you, I feel like they are some of the most blessed children on this planet. So for those who are listening, really want you to support asiashope.org and just check out what John's doing and the great things that he says on Twitter too, because yeah. he's pretty weird <laughs> and funny, but also really smart. So, Well, thank you, Nicole, yeah. and thank you for creating this venue. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the One Voice podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you can find a minute, please write a review so others looking for encouragement on the topic of sexual abuse can find us and join the movement. To become a part of our online community, visit IamOneVoice.org and follow us on Facebook by searching for One Voice, spelled together as one word. We'll see you here next time on the One Voice podcast.